Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. This episode is brought to you by the Center for Addiction and Mental Health here in Toronto. Cutting-edge, state-of-the-art, compassionate facility. Right now, it is Mental Health Awareness Week. This is the time when they need you most. This is the time when you can make a real difference when it comes to doing something about the mental health crisis and the devastating opioid epidemic, the overdose epidemic that we're currently experiencing, losing 20 people every day. They need your help. Donate at camh.ca slash CanadaLand to help CAMH treat addiction and build hope. This episode of Canada Land is brought to you by Douglas, a mattress that is trusted by more than 200,000 Canadians from coast to coast to coast. It's a great mattress at a very reasonable price point. Comes with a 20-year warranty and a great deal for our listeners. Douglas is giving you a free sleep bundle with each mattress purchase. Get the sheets, pillows, mattress, and pillow protectors free with your Douglas purchase today. Visit douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer. That is douglas.ca slash CanadaLand. Hey, I've got some great news to share uh, before today's show. As many of you know, we wanted to raise money to do a a sequel, a follow-up to our Thunder Bay series. We wanted to do uh, an entire season uh, where Ryan McMahon would look at Niagara Falls. And we didn't get there in our last crowdfunding campaign. The good news that I want to share right now is that we are going to make that podcast. We will be producing a follow-up to Thunder Bay. In fact, we are about to begin several deep dive investigations, and we will also be able to increase the resources that we have for this show, our flagship show, for our entire news service. We're going to be doing a lot more original reporting here at Canada Land Media going forward. Today, I am thrilled to announce that we have raised a round of funding from the Tiny Foundation. This is an investment that's going to be paid out in monthly installments over the course of three years. And ultimately, it'll add up to $1 million. What I want to do right now is take a couple of minutes to tell you more about this deal. So the Tiny Foundation. The Tiny Foundation is a new nonprofit organization that's based in Victoria, British Columbia. It is focused on four areas, social justice, child protection, medical research, and journalism. To be clear, they are a non-profit, but they are not a charity. They are not donating this money to Canada Land. They are buying a slice of Canada Land, and they hope to get a return on their investment. But here's the part that I really like about this deal. Any money that they get back from us, the Tiny Foundation will then reinvest into Canadian journalism. The goal of their project is to help sustain Canadian journalism writ large, 
not with grants, but by fueling promising and profitable news organizations like ours, and then cycling any returns that they get back into the ecosystem. So the model is that if Canada Land succeeds, our success will actually fuel other small news organizations, which sounds great to me and is very compatible with our values. But more important to us is that this new investor of ours has absolutely nothing to do with our editorial content. Editorial independence is in the contract, and it's, it's worth reading that part to you. The tiny foundation, quote, shall not have any involvement, influence, or control in the editorial decisions or processes of Canada Land Media. So that's the deal. $1 million spread out over three years, which is not unlimited money. And I'm aware of the dangers of getting too reliant on investor money. You know, our model is not to raise cash from investors, burn it, get more cash from investors. No, our model is to earn our existence by convincing you to support us. That is still our model, and we need each and every supporter. But this is a boost that we hope to do great things with. It's a chance to level up. It is going to be fun. It is going to be exciting. It's our next big adventure here. Now, if I were reporting this as a media story about somebody else, I would have tons of questions. Some of you may have questions like that for me, and I'm happy to answer them. You can ask me anything at jesse at canadalandshow.com, and we will post the answers. But we have a fantastic show to get to today, so let's get to that. Thank you. Today, something's going to happen that has never happened before on this podcast. I'm going to interview a CBC News anchor, Adrian Harewood. Good evening. I'm Adrian Harewood. Welcome to our municipal election special. We're live online and on Facebook tonight. Here's the context. Black journalists around the world have been breaking rank, breaking protocol, breaking the rules of their news organizations in some cases. And that is happening because of the Black Lives Matter movement. It is happening because cops keep killing black people and because of the protests all around the world. There's no simple way to explain and encapsulate the why and the how of, of this reckoning in newsrooms. It's playing out differently everywhere. In the case of the New York Times, black journalists spoke out when their paper published an editorial from U.S. Senator Tom Cotton, calling for Trump to sick the military on the protesters. The Times black journalists went public, arguing that by publishing a call for increased military intervention, their own newspaper was actually putting their lives in danger. Reporters covering the protests could be hurt or killed. I'll probably get in trouble for this, tweeted Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist Nicole Hannah-Jones. But to not say something would be immoral. As a black woman, as a journalist, I am deeply ashamed that we ran this. The New York Times soon acknowledged that the piece did not meet their standards and had been poorly edited, and the editor of their opinion page resigned. Elsewhere, the Philadelphia Inquirer's executive editor resigned over the headline, Buildings Matter Too. There have been shakeups, callouts, firings, and resignations over the issue of race at the Wall Street Journal, at ABC News, at Bon Appetit, 
at Refinery29, BuzzFeed, and Variety. And all of that brings us to the CBC, where, as previously discussed on this podcast, black journalists have been breaking the public broadcaster's own social media guidelines in order to share their experiences of racist behavior at the CBC. They did so while the CBC was blundering, apologizing, and blundering again in its public coverage and internal handling of the protests. As the CBC ran footage that omitted brutal acts of police violence, as their president and CEO was lambasted by her own staff for a tone-deaf memo that she later apologized for, and as Wendy Mesley was taken off the air for using a racial slur in an editorial meeting. And all of that, again, raised the issue of black representation at the CBC. If people who knew better had been in positions of power, all of those errors could have been avoided. The CBC's racialized journalists, many of them, came forward and shared their stories. Stories about being told by their colleagues and bosses that they are merely tokens, not worthy of their positions or their awards. And they shared stories about being invisible at the CBC, about being repeatedly mistaken for the other black or brown or Asian journalist on their teams by bosses who couldn't be bothered to learn their names. In sharing their stories, they knew that they might be disciplined, even fired. They did it anyhow. After all, the CBC has other rules and principles. One is in their mandate. They have an obligation to reflect the multicultural and multiracial nature of Canada. But they don't. They never have. Back in 2016, we ran a piece by journalist Farnia Fekri titled, Just How White is the CBC? Farnia reported that the CBC was somewhere between 90 to 93% white in a country that is only about 73% white. Now, the CBC did not just hand those revealing numbers over to Farnia. She obtained them through an access to information request. All that their spokesperson said at the time was that they were improving. Representation of minorities in their workplace was increasing. And, quote, we continue to exceed industry availability for women. That was their official word. But one voice that Farnia spoke to told a different story. Adrian Harewood went on the record with Canada Land and openly questioned whether or not CBC managers were truly committed to improving representation. And he said, quote, we absolutely need more producers and managers of color in the ranks of CBC. Adrian spoke up again in recent weeks on Twitter. And now he joins me on the show in just a moment. Wait for it. This episode of Canada Land is brought to you by Grant Boudet, Emma Bray, Heidi Gacier, Chris Fraser, Julia Adams, Patrick Collins, Jonathan Scott, and Oren. My name is Oren, and I'm a construction estimator project manager in Maple Ridge, BC. I support Canada Land because even though sometimes the views of Jesse and some of his guests are so far to the left that I feel the need to shower the filth off after listening to them, I feel that the reporting done on all of the Canada Land affiliated shows is top-notch. It almost seems impossible to find news stories without the filter of whatever political agendas the news organizations have, but I feel like that's exactly what you guys provide. Thanks for all your hard work, and can't wait for the Niagara Falls podcast to come out. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. 
Uh, it's amazing the things that we tell ourselves to talk ourselves out of getting help. Anybody who's actually gotten help knows that the process of getting things off your chest, of taking your stressors, your problems, and just like not letting them be bottled up, working through just conveying them to somebody, half of the battle is just doing that. You unburden yourself. And you know what? If you have a real mental health professional, no, they don't have magic bullets or magic words that make it all go away. But often they can help you see things a little bit differently and guide you to strategies or tools or to a new perspective that actually does help. As the largest online therapy provider in the world, BetterHelp can provide access to mental health professionals with a wide variety of expertise in mental health. Because you listen to this podcast, you get 10% off of your first month at betterhelp.com slash CanadaLand. That's betterhelp.com slash CanadaLand. This episode is brought to you by Douglas, a mattress trusted by more than 200,000 Canadians from coast to coast to coast. Trust is important. There are a lot of mattress lies out there, a lot of mattress liars. And I, I, I didn't intend the pun, but it occurred to me that there is one as I was saying those words. Listen, I am not lying to you. Uh, I have uh, experienced the Douglas mattress. It is an exceptional mattress at a surprisingly affordable price point. It is a mattress that sleeps cool. It doesn't have that weird thing in the summer where the mattress gets like an oven. It's a very good product. It's delivered to your house in a box. You don't have to go to a big mattress store. It is a medium firm mattress, which is what Canadians prefer, and it comes with a 365-night trial and a 20-year warranty. What more can I tell you? Douglas is giving our listeners a free sleep bundle with each mattress purchase. Get the sheets, pillows, mattress, and pillow protectors free with your Douglas purchase today. Visit douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer. I want to thank you for being here. Um, I can't imagine it was an easy decision. Being a, a news anchor, like this isn't this isn't comfortable for you. Like you're comfortable interviewing other people and delivering the news, not being the subject of a news story, the subject of an interview. Is that fair? That's true. Why'd you do it? Well, because I think I have a responsibility to do it. I, I think I I owe it to the generations that preceded me uh, that fought to create space. Uh, in this country, in all of its institutions. I think I owe it to this particular moment that we're living in. I owe it because, you know, I'm fortunate enough to be in a position of power or relative power as the host of a program on the public broadcaster. So, you know, I think it's, it's always incumbent upon those people who have the ability to make change, positive change, uh, to do so. You know, this this has been a long, this has been a long struggle. You know, this 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 kind of fight that we're in right now is is not new. I was reflecting just this week on the fact that that nearly thirty years ago, I attended a, a Canadian university press conference in Valleyfield, Quebec. Uh, it must have been around nineteen ninety two, I think nineteen ninety three. Uh, at the time, I was a, a contributor to the McGill Daily. I wasn't on staff, but I was a contributor. And so I attended that conference. And, and that conference was attended by the likes of uh, Naomi Klein was there. Doug was there, Doug Saunders. Mm -hmm. and Nala, Nala Ayad was there as well. Uh, Stephanie Nolan was there. Really? And that was an incredibly, I think that was a, pretty, that was a seminal conference actually in this country's history. And I, I don't think I'm exaggerating when I say that. And, and not a lot has been written about it. But at that conference, 
the hot topic was the topic of representation in Canadian media. And we were talking about systemic racism. And it was a very, very emotionally charged event. There were a lot of tears <laughs> and there was a lot of anger. There was hostility. There was fear expressed. All these things that we're seeing today, all of this, you know, the same debate they were having today happened almost 30 years ago. And so I think that I've kind of committed myself to trying to be part of the solution uh, to what I see as being um, an existential problem uh, for the CBC, uh, but also just in general for Canadian media. The reason why I decided to to say something is because you know my parents my my parents were educators they 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 taught at, at university and, and community college, uh, but they were also activists in in the nineteen late nineteen sixties nineteen seventies they were columnists both of them were were national columnists for Contrast which was the the main English language black newspaper in the nineteen seventies they they began at the, the, the paper in nineteen seventy four. And the reason why contrast emerged, uh, it emerged in 1969, I think the same month of the Sir George Williams affair, you know, the, the kind of biggest student demonstration in, in Canadian history, student protests in Canadian history, that was really part of Canada's civil rights movement. Mm -hmm. um, but that paper, contrast, emerged because there was a feeling in the black community that the mainstream media was not being true to who we were as, as human beings, that, that the mainstream media was not telling our story uh, and that we needed our own organ in order to talk about our reality and to talk about the reality of living in this country. And uh, there, there wasn't space really at the CBC. There wasn't space in the 1970s at the Globe and Mail uh, or at any of the other newspapers. Um, and so they they created that, and and so that's why I'm here, <laughs> you know that that's that's why I speak, and and also I'm surrounded by by strong people, and 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 people who, I think at least are principled people, and and who, who encourage me. But there are stakes for you. You have, as you say, a position of relative power. But uh, as you told us, you know, we 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 spoke to you. Farnia Fekri was reporting for us four years ago. And you shocked me by giving us comment. I mean, we don't get comment from active CBC journalists that there is a process whereby CBC journalists are supposed to ask management for permission before they give comment to another media organization. And we're not considered a safe media organization. You told us four years ago, some folks at CBC are reluctant to talk about race matters at the corporation out of fear. And that fear is real. Whenever one talks about race in a professional context in Canada, there is always concern about the repercussions that one will be labeled or pigeonholed as a whiner, a troublemaker, as an amateur or incompetent who uses the race card and no one wants to be labeled or deemed unprofessional. Were there repercussions? Have there been repercussions for you for speaking out about this? What are you, what are you risking by speaking now? Well, first of all, it's always a risk to speak. You know, I determined that in spite of whatever, I don't know, professional ramifications there might be for, for, for speaking up, that I had no choice but to do so. 
you know, the late, the late Toni Morrison, the, the Nobel laureate, you know, and, I, and I'm paraphrasing here, said something to the effect that, you know, when you are in a position of, of power, when, and if you are free, then your job is to free other people. Uh, your job essentially is to create space for other people. That sometimes involves putting things that you care about in jeopardy. And, and again, you know the risk that I'm taking. You know, let, let's let's not let's not be let's not kind of exaggerate. You know, like I, I'm not on the front lines. I'm not in danger of being killed. One shouldn't be kind of self-indulgent and kind of and and, and self-important and think that that one is doing some kind of grand thing, right? Like people have made much greater sacrifices and are currently making much greater sacrifices and taking much greater risks than I am. I, I'm a privileged person. I have options. Right. So in terms of the consequence or what would have been the consequences, you know, I'm not sure. I, I don't know exactly. I don't feel as if I've been ostracized by my colleagues. You know, I, I still they still talk to me. <laughs> you, know, you know, we're still we're still friends. So that's I think I hope so that so so that's good. It it might be true that that. Uh, you know, perhaps I, I have a little bit of a reputation. Yeah, but in terms of being sanctioned for for speaking out about these things in a kind of a formal, official way, no. And I should also say that at that time, I think I actually informed CBC yeah. that I was going to be doing it, just like I did now. Like I, I, I told them that this is what I wanted to do. And they so, gave you permission. Yeah, they did. Uh, yeah, yeah, I think we have to acknowledge that. Um, yeah. I, I I don't know in you know the recent sort of um, Twitter campaign where where current CBC employees were talking about incidents of of racism and systemic racism at the CBC. I don't know if you got permission for that tweet. I'm pretty sure not all those journalists got permission for the for those tweets. I would venture to say that none of them got permission. But I think what's happened is that people have lost their fear. Yeah. Right. And there's such momentum, and and the ground is shifting beneath our feet right now. And I and I think in large part, of course. You know the the horrendous killing of of George Floyd, the murder of George Floyd. That has changed the world, right? That that's had an impact. That that's reverberated around this globe, and, and it 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 has caused movement uh, in our country, in in Canada. I don't remember having in my entire life, and I'm turning what I'm turning fifty this year, right? So that the kinds of conversations that we're having. And the intensity of the discussion is is new. You're deeply rooted in these issues. Back to your parents writing for uh, a black newspaper uh, dealing with black Canadian issues. And, and your work, you hosted Soul Perspective on CKUT, a show about black Canadian issues. You hosted a show called Black on Black for University of Ottawa Campus Radio. My co-host will say you weren't the only host. Okay. <laughs> you contributed to the show Black on Black uh, for the University of Ottawa radio station CHUO, but you were also uh, involved in activism. And uh, I'll make you uncomfortable because journalists are always uncomfortable in an acknowledgement that they have politics or were ever politically active. Um, but you were the anti-racist project coordinator at Global Community Center in Kingston. Is that informing where you're coming from right now? Well, first of all, I'm not embarrassed about that. And I share that you know, I, I, I'm not, I'm not reluctant to share that because I, I think it's important for us to talk about how we got to where we are. The reason why I came to journalism when I when I was at McGill was because 
I was involved in movement. We were trying to change things. You know, I my first year at university was in 1989. Nelson Mandela was still in jail. I was part of the anti-apartheid group on on campus, right? The Southern Africa Committee. I was a member of that. I was the uh, librarian for the Black Students Network, and we saw media as being a way of trying to raise people's consciousness. We saw it as being a way to tell different stories, right? And to change the narrative because we saw the way in which we as individuals, you know, our community was framed. You know, I was a student. Yeah, I was a student activist. Am I still an activist? No, I'm not. Like, that's not, I'm not a student activist, but, but I am interested in change always. That's my history. I study that. That's what my thesis is on. (laughs) <laughs> you know, so yeah, these are things that I've been preoccupied with for a lot of time. I think that if people were being fair to me, and and they've watched watched me or listened to me over the you know the fourteen years that I've been at CBC Ottawa, both on radio and television, I would hope that audience members will say, okay, I recognize that he has a particular kind of history, but I also recognize that he's committed to the to telling the truth. And he's committed to shining a light on all the dark spaces in this society, right? And that he's committed to, you know, um, you know, comforting the afflicted and, you know, afflicting the comfortable, you know? Like, say like, it, that, say that, it. It's okay. It's okay to no, say that. <laughs> no, but I'm saying, no, but I'm saying that, that that's, part of, that's part of the work of a journalist. Part of my job is to be an agitator. You know, being a journalist, you know, I think... Jamil Hill, you know, said being a journalist isn't about making friends, right? Right. Although I'm a very friendly person, I think, and very congenial. And I, and I think I've made a lot of friends during my time, but sometimes you have to piss people off. So yes, I have politics, but we all have politics. You know, I've worked, I've worked at CBC. I've been associated with CBC for like 17, 18 years. I talk to people all the time. Every single person at CBC has politics. Everyone. There's not a single person, not a single colleague who does not have politics, right? I defy every everyone. And you know what? Sometimes your politics is that you, you have no politics, <laughs> right? That you're apolitical. That's a position, right? That's a position. Because when it comes to matters of a person's humanity, if you don't stand up for the person's humanity, then that's a problem. Adrian, you talk about, okay, you're in a relatively safe position. Let's not be dramatic here. Well, you know, CBC journalist Amr Khan tweeted about Don Cherry's racism and was uh, told to remove those tweets and doesn't work at the CBC anymore after that. And I'm, I'm, I understand that's a direct result. So, yeah, that's not putting your life on the line. But, you know, I, I'm sure your career is pretty important to you. So I don't want to minimize what you and, uh, and so many others are risking. Why is it? So, I mean, it's important that every organization have this reckoning and talk about these things, but what is the particular uh, emphasis on representation in the media? I know it's important if you work in the media as a racialized person that there's fairness and equity, but what is the implication for society writ large in terms of having a representative media? Okay, I'll I'll tell you why. I'll tell you why it matters. Um, You know, I know as a kid growing up in this country that it was very, very rare to see positive stories or, or kind of nuanced stories about members of the black community in the kind of media organs of record mm-hmm. when I was growing up. I was born in 1970, the year of the October crisis. You know, as a kid, I've been told that I, I was a pretty precocious kid and I, I would, would often 
read the newspaper. I think I started reading the newspaper at the age of six. We got the Globe and Mail in our, in our, at, at home. You know, I was talking to my dad the other day and he was saying that, that invariably in the 1970s, the stories that were told specifically about black people in a newspaper like the Globe was often about crime, right? There was always some kind of pathology attached to it, mm-hmm. right? Imagine the effect that it has on a kid when the only images they see, see of themselves or the only stories they hear, hear about themselves are negative stories, are stories which suggest that there's something inherently criminal about people who look like them. You know, imagine the impact that it has on them when they see any kind of discussion, let's say, about continental Africa only involving some kind of pathology. You know, what? first of all, what does that do to a person's self-image, self-esteem, right? That, that has a very real material effect on an individual. The other reason why it's important is that I'm a citizen of this country. You know, I have two kids. They are full citizens. My kids deserve every single opportunity that your kids have. You know, my, ki- my kids deserve to be able to participate in every space in this society, just like your kids do. Um, my kids are no better or worse than yours. <laughs> you know? So, you know, I, um, you know, I feel as if I have a stake and that we, co- we have a stake, first of all, in every single institution in this country. You know, the CBC isn't owned by any particular group. It is owned by Canadians, or at least it's owned by all the people who reside, live in this territory. Yeah. And they have a right to have their story told with the depth of sincerity and rigor and nuance as anyone else. Right. And, you know, I've been, I've been thinking a lot about, um, I was, think, I was thinking a lot about the, that, that conference, that conference in, in Valleyfield mm-hmm. um, and the intense, you know, that I, that I referenced, the, 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 the CUP conference, the Canadian University Press Conference that happened in the early 90s and how emotional it was. Um, and, you know, what was really interesting to me was a lot of the people who were considered, you know, the kind of liberal progressives at the time were the ones who seemed to be most resistant to change. How so? What was the emotion about? What was the conflict about? Um, you know, I think it was at the time, it was about, you know, the mechanisms that we use in order to make change in institutions, right? So it might have been a conversation about some form of affirmative action as a remedy for the um, imbalances the kind of institutional entrenched imbalances that existed in Canadian media for a lot of time. So people were talking about different kinds of remedies, right? And if I remember correctly, the kind of some of the liberal progressives were concerned or rather, and, and actually I had a a bit of a conversation, kind of an online conversation with Doug Saunders about this, you know, the other day. And, and he confirmed this, right? That, that maybe the feeling because I think he kind of identified himself as being one of those liberal progressives. And the feeling at the time was that people of color should allow progress to happen, right? That, that progress naturally was going to move 
was going to occur and that there didn't need to be the kind of interventions in order to make the change, right? That the change was somehow natural, that it was kind of part of evolution. Um, and so that was the kind of attitude. And I think part of it is that for maybe folks like Doug, you know, who, who's a white journalist, and, and again, I don't want to kind of simplify things and, 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 and make things more polarized than they actually were, but just for the sake of this, 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 this discussion, you know, for folks like Doug, white journalist, and me, a black journalist, we had a different conception of politics at that time and a different conception of what the function of the media was. Right, and what our role was, like what we were doing. For people who were in kind of my circle, you know, we were effectively struggling for our humanity. We weren't necessarily thinking about a job, you know, or even necessarily a career in journalism. That wasn't the point. What we were trying to do, and I, I don't want to exaggerate things, but you know, when you're a young person, you you actually do feel that you're changing the world. And we were trying to change the world. We were trying to um change the power dynamic. You know, we were trying to change the, the, the stories that were told. Mm -hmm. um, and maybe for folks like Doug, they had a more kind of individualistic approach, right? That, that they didn't have the same kind of connection to community or to a particular community in the way in which we did. I mean, there's so much going on here. And, and to quote from that conversation you had with, with Doug Saunders, and, and you just said, you know, we, we, we were trying to change the world. I'm not sure you did. And, and you acknowledged this. You said, how is it possible that in 2020 we could have a situation where the entire senior executive at the media company where you work, Doug Saunders Globe and Mail, and the media company where I work, CBC, both based in one of the most multiracial cities in the world, could be all white. So that change didn't happen. You know, and, and we're, we're in a society that is so much more diverse than the CBC. CBC has a mandate to reflect Canada in its content and in its its uh, its staffing and its management is supposed to, you know, uh, and that's 30 years ago you're having that conversation. To, to, talk, to talk about where Doug may have been coming from, uh, yesterday I was uh, on Twitter saying, hey, this might be a good time to remind everybody that we've got two jobs open here at Canada Land and we are committed to fixing a problem here, which is that we don't have black or indigenous representation at senior editorial levels. I've been called a racist many dozen times since that. The idea of some form of affirmative action is remains a uh, electrified, uh, divisive, angry-making idea, and it's not just amongst uh, you know people from the right. I think that a lot of people who consider themselves, you know, individualistic people of the liberal tradition, uh, of a left tradition, think, no, you don't make hiring decisions based on race. And furthermore, like, you're challenging some basic concepts of journalism, right? Because what you're saying is, um, and, I, and I think it's common sense in a certain level, some of the mistakes that CBC has made in covering Black Lives Matter in the protests that they've acknowledged, or the mistakes that your president and CEO has made, in her internal communications where she couldn't even say anti-black racism, those mistakes might not have happened if there had been people of color involved in making those editorial decisions. That's true. Right? 
so when we're talking about why does it matter to have representation in a newsroom, I think you're right that it matters for racialized communities and for young people seeing themselves reflected. But it also matters for how people are portrayed to everybody else in society. So on the one hand, you know, on the one hand, we like we, we kind of think like, OK, it's just common sense. If you have more women in the newsroom, you're going to like a, a newsroom with no women is not going to cover women's issues very well. Uh, but but that is in contrast, that is in conflict with a basic concept of journalism, which is it doesn't matter who the reporter is. The reporter is supposed to be objective. A black reporter is not going to be better at, at covering something just because they're black. Uh, we, we're, we're supposed to not be a part of the story. Yeah, it's not it's not it's not better, but it's different. Right? Yeah, but there's a, there is a there's a conflict there that I feel like people are still not over in acknowledging that there is like there is a subjective value to having people who are subjectively representative. Uh, it, you know, it's not just about fairness to that community. It's going to impact the product. And I think a lot of people in our field do not recognize that and disagree with that on a, on a basic level. Well, we all have, we all come from somewhere, don't we? I'll give you an example. Like when I, when I was, when I was nine years old, Albert Johnson, a, a Jamaican immigrant was shot by the Toronto police inside his home. You know, I remember reading about that story in in contrast the, the newspaper that my parents wrote in you know it, that 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 incident with with albert johnson be, became a, a huge story in in this country you know it was a case of, of of police brutality and and it had a huge effect on the on the on the black community the black canadian community and i was i was affected by that being exposed to that and ha having read about it you know f feeling you know, experiencing that moment has affected who I am today, right? And 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 it it affects the way in which I approach some of these stories because these are not unfamiliar stories to me, right? These are stories that that affect people who might be my friends, uh, people who might be my cousins, you know, folks who might be um, my neighbors, and because in, because I have a, a particular kind of grounding. In some instances, it allows me to maybe ask certain questions and, 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 and ch maybe even challenge power in a way that, that maybe others can't because they don't have that information. We, when I am, let's say, in a position where I'm leading an interview around police brutality and anti-Black racism, I, I come, at, come at it from a different angle, from a different perspective. And that's something that we need. You know, we need different perspectives. In fact, if we don't have that kind of diversity in our staff, then we're not going to do good journalism, <laughs> right? Right. If we want to do good journalism, we want to make sure that we have all the bases covered, right? And that our staff at every level reflects the society that we're covering. And if it doesn't, then that's bad management, <laughs> Right, like and that's it, not that's that's bad leadership. And what yeah. I will say is that this is not just about CBC. This is about every media organization in this country. I will say it's a labor that gets that gets put on to your shoulders and to racialized journalists. And I think that if anything comes out of this, it should be that we all have to we all have to do this work. Um, what Jesse, what I'll say also, just just you know, forgive, forgive me for interrupting, but I'll also say is the tendency is. And this happens in all kinds of organizations. The tendency is to hire your own, right? And when I say your own, you hire people that you're familiar with. You hire people within your group, right? And But what ends up happening when you do that, right, is that you end up perpetuating inequalities that exist in the society. Yeah. 
because not everyone has the same access. Not everyone gets those opportunities. And, and the fact is that it's a travesty in 2020 that any media organization right, could have a senior leadership only comprised of white people. Now, we need to acknowledge that progress has happened in this country, right? We've seen it. It's happened in, in our lifetime, Jesse. 20, 30 years ago, a place like CBC was a male preserve. It was mainly men who were in positions of power, who were in dis- decision-making positions. They were the gatekeepers, mainly white men, I should add. 20, 30 years on, there has been a change, you know, and, and, and that's to the good, right? The fact that there are, are many more women in powerful positions at a place like CBC, you know, speaks to the struggles that women have been engaged in to create space for themselves for a long time, right? And that's something which we should be lauding. That's something that that's, that's, should be celebrated. But there's something missing there. White women have made progress and they yeah. have access to power, but we don't see representation, a proportionate representation of indigenous women, women of color, black women in these positions. There's no reason why what has happened to women, particularly white women within a place like CBC, cannot happen to black, indigenous, and people of color within the public broadcaster. And I dare say to say, like in other media organs, at the National Post, at the Globe and Mail, at Canada Land, at the Toronto Star, at all the other media organizations in this country. But Adrian, the first thing we have to do is be able to talk about it. And um, I want to move to like the practical side of this with you. Like, it's great that the CBC has given you permission to talk about this. Uh, That's nice. It's great that they're maybe not going to punish the other people who talked about this without asking for permission. But the fact is, there is still this humiliating rule that you do not have permission de facto. And here it is. We are guided by the principle of impartiality. Uh, CBC journalists do not express their own personal opinion because it affects the perception of impartiality. Do we need to strike that rule? I mean, when, when, a, when a racialized CBC employee cannot agree online with the statement, Black Lives Matter, because that is uh, taking a position on a controversial protest movement, and they have to ask permission from management, and they might not have your power to get that permission. Do we need to do away with this, I think, archaic and antiquated concept? Well, I think, I think the, that conversation is happening. Um, I was in I was in a meeting with the president of the CBC, um, you know, along with a number of other black colleagues across the country. Right. That was a topic. That was something that came up. It was explicit um, in, in almost every single meeting that I've had in the last two weeks. And there have been plenty. You know, there have been lots and lots of meetings. There's lots of conversations happening right now that has come up in almost every single session. Right. So I think that that is on the table. And, and, and there's a recognition that it's not necessarily serving the, the corporation well, certainly not serving the journalists who work at the CBC well, um, and that we need to consider amending it. Has it taken too, us too long to get to this point? I would say yes. You know, what I would also say is that my humanity is never up for debate. Uh-huh. I don't debate my humanity. And I don't think anyone should ever debate their humanity. So when I affirm that, it's not a political position. 
Uh, I mean, of course, that is just plainly true. And yet the sad fact is that we do live in a world where like facts are controversial increasingly. Like, like it is coming to a head, you know, so these conversations are happening, you say. And I, 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 I know just from reading you online that like you have an ambivalence about whether these conversations, CBC and other institutions are able to have these conversations, but are they able to change? You wrote the mistake that we made in the 90s was trying to change Canadian media in trying to change Canadian media, focusing on raising awareness uh, or changing people's minds. But the truth is, it was always about power, and power mm-hmm. only responds to pressure. That's true. Mm-hmm. And yeah, and 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 this this cyclical Groundhog Day of like every now and then, every few years, it bursts out, and you can have the conversation, and and you know the institution will acknowledge its deficits and give permission for the debate, and then things kind of settle back into like maybe like a little iota more progressed than they were. I'm creeping you online. I'm I'm listening into all your conversations. It's just so amazing to see them happening. Uh, you, you were having a debate, uh, conversation with Vicky Machama that's felt almost like a generational divide between black Canadian journalists where Vicky said, we need to push past hiring and talk about systemic racism and the violence of whiteness. I am willing to indict the whole table rather than insisting on a seat at it. I I don't, I, I don't disagree with that. I don't, I don't disagree with that at all. It seemed like there was uh, there was uh, tension between your positions where she's saying it's more important to me. Like, I'll, I'll indict everything here uh, and, and accept that I don't get to be a part of this club. And you said, sure. So you did acknowledge. But you also said, what's the what's the plan? What's the strategy? What's to be done about this? No, to me, to me, to me, it was more about it was more about politics. What I was trying to suggest was that we need to be organized and we need to be strategic and we particularly can't wait for power to change, right? What I was interpreting from what Vicky was saying was that it's up to the powers that be to kind of make the change. You know, these online conversations are, 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 can, are sometimes kind of truncated and not really, uh, they sometimes don't allow you to spit. Like we, we, perhaps if we were in the same room, you know, we'd be able to kind of understand what, we, what, what each other was saying. And what I was saying was, okay, that's fine, but we need to figure out, we need to kind of come up with a plan. If you look at social, the, you know, the social movements that, that have inspired me were led by people who were intentional. The Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee was intentional. The Black Panther Party was intentional. Is the, the system in itself uh, rotten? Yes. <laughs> right. Yeah. Um, does the system need to be transformed? Absolutely, absolutely. But I'm saying that that yeah. That, but to me, to me, that goes without saying, right? Yes, it is. But I'm saying I'm working within CBC, so that's what I was addressing. If I'm there, and if I'm living here, and if CBC is still a national organization, and if I'm a citizen, then I have a stake in it. I'm not going to relinquish that. I'm not going to. I'm not going to leave that just to some kind of people. And, 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 and allow them to take all those resources and, and do with those resources as they may. No, I'm saying I live here. My, my family lives here. You know, we have a right to be represented. And, and I'm not going to allow anyone to tell me that I don't belong in this space. You know, because my, my mother, my Antiguan mother, who's about what, five foot one, five foot two, but who's a powerhouse, always told her children that we belonged every in every single space in every single institution in this society, and we should never back down from that. Well, you own it. 
I mean, you own CBC as much as I do, as much as anybody does. That's my point. I can't. <laughs> <laughs> I don't disagree. That's, what, that's my point. I'm saying we, we all own it. We all have a stake in it, right? Um, yeah. You know, I, I, I've had like a, a long-term relationship with this corporation. I started listening to it and watching it when I was a boy, right? And it means something to me. And, and I can say that, you know, I grew up loving the CBC, and and I feel very passionately about it. I feel very I feel very passionately about public broadcasting, right? Um, but and and sometimes when you are critical of something, you know, we we often criticize those things that we love the most, or were the most critical things that we love the most. Everybody at the CBC works in an organization that made all the mistakes that the CBC has acknowledged in covering the protests. Everybody who works at the CBC works in an organization where Wendy Mesley used, I believe, the N-word in, in an editorial meeting. Uh, everybody at the CBC works in an organization where the president and CBO couldn't name anti-black racism in a memo about anti-black racism. And amongst everybody who works at the CBC, there are journalists, and you're one of them, who have chosen to speak out publicly about problems within the CBC. And there are... CBC journalists who host As It Happens and The National and The Current. And they're not the same journalists. Not everybody. Whatever, whatever risk it is that you're taking, not everybody's taking that risk. You know, what, I'm, what, I, what I would say is that people play different roles. In movements, people play different roles. And, and sometimes people are doing things behind the scenes that, that we're not aware of. You know, you think about the civil rights movement. For example, you know, people now maybe know that someone like a Harry Belafonte was bankrolling, you know, a lot of things during the civil rights movement. You know, at the time, people might not have fully realized how much he was actually contributing. So, you know, we should be a little bit careful in judging people who might not be speaking in the way in which we would like them to speak. You love something enough to risk something to try to change it. Other people don't feel that way. You have a stake in the CBC. You've built something for yourself at the CBC. You have a position of some power at the CBC. And whatever your criticisms are, you have a love for the public broadcaster that you want it to change and you're willing to be a part of that. People entering the industry, some of them say, enough of this. En enough of this. It's not going to change. It's never changed it needs to just come down. I think that what you recognize in your discourse about this is that it's all about power. It's not about changing people's minds. It's not about appealing to the, the humanity or the niceness of management. People don't willingly give up power. You don't just cede it. It's, it's, when, it's when the circumstances change so that like, wow, if I want to maintain my legitimacy, this is a bad look. I, I'm going to have to. Uh, uh, be more representative. I'm going to have to give real power. That's when institutions change. And that's the moment that we're in right now. It's moved up the ladder uh, and, and back to the CBC. They've acknowledged that on air has to be representative. They've done a decent job of that. They've acknowledged that they have to hire differently. But it, it, it's, it's it does into senior management, into the board of directors, into the president and CEO hasn't gotten there. But, you know, let, let me just stop you for one second, because I, I want to make something clear. I'm not begging for anything. <laughs> right right i'm not begging for anything yeah we're saying that 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 this this organization cannot stand if we're not there it like it, it can't it can't continue if we're not there period mm -hmm. we have to be there like it's not it's not 
there's not a debate, right? Right? Like I'm saying that we own the place, just like everyone else owns the place. So it has to change. Period. It's not. It's not a. I'm. I'm not. You know, on my knees. You know, asking someone, please, please, give me something. No. And and the thing is that that organizations are organic, like they live and they die, and CBC can die, right? Like any other organization. Yeah. You know, like it doesn't have to. It's not always necessarily going to be. And and I I am fully comfortable with the notion that that at at a certain point something needs to die, and and then you you create something anew. That's not something necessarily to be afraid of. Right, and I'm fully, I'm fully comfortable going down that route if that's the route that needs that we need to go down. In fifteen or twenty years from now, are we going to be having the same conversation about Canadian media? We'll see. But I will, and and I think many people are determined that there will be a very different conversation. That is your Canada Land episode. We are a people-powered media company. We need your support. You can give it to us by clicking the link in the show notes or going to canadalandshow.com slash join. Costs five bucks a month, takes a second or two. You can email me at jesse at canadalandshow.com. I read them all. We are on Twitter at canadaland. Our website is canadalandshow.com. Kasia Mihailovich is our senior producer. Our managing editor is Andrea Schmidt. Syndication is handled by CFUV 101.9 FM in Victoria. Visit them online at cfuv.ca. Hey, I need you to pay close attention to this message. It is not an ad. This is about Canada land and this is about you. You need to know that the news crisis is about to get a lot worse. You've heard about the layoffs. We're about to have news closures and it's very likely that we're going to be seeing the defunding of the CBC. Where are you going to get your information from? What can you do about this? You can support Canada land. We need you to And so for this month and this month only, you can become a Canadaland supporter and get everything our supporters get for just $2 a month. That is an almost 80% discount. The clock is ticking on this. It disappears at the end of the month, and then we will not offer it. We need your support. We need to keep news coverage alive in Canada. Go right now to canadaland.com slash join. And thank you. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.